Well, I believe there's some handouts going around here. So uh, if you need one, just put your hand up and uh, you can take a look at that. And just again, a reminder, the handouts, I've tried to put all the references in there so that you can uh, go home and take a look through them. And obviously you would have realised that uh, keeping up with me in the reading of verses and flipping pages, you, it's, it's going to be impossible. Uh, so that's why the references are there for you to just be encouraged by and take a look at a little later on. Um, so this is the last session, and uh, it's been a, for me, it's been a joy. It's been great going through the, uh, I guess, one of my favourite topics. Uh, obviously not a, a thoroughly deep view or perspective, and, and we'd be here for months if that was the case. So just wanted to touch on these concepts to whet your appetite a little uh, so that you go away and study this a little further and be super, super encouraged. And this last message, it's not as long as the last one, but uh, we're focusing on the eternal state. And as I said right from the get-go, God has determined a sequence of events. And there's a lot of trigger points within these major events occurring, which uh, one leads to another. And <clears throat> it's interesting, we just looked at the millennial kingdom, uh, that period in history for 1,000 years where Christ rules and reigns. And for that 1,000 years, he is putting everyone and everything in subjection to him. And that's part of the 1,000-year reign. That's part of the reason why it's there. There's a wonderful verse here in 1 Corinthians uh, 15.24, and it says this. It talks about what occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom, this exchanging of authority to the Father by the Son. Verse 24, it says this, Then comes the end, when, the, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what's that saying? It's talking very clearly about the millennial kingdom, Christ ruling and reigning for that 1,000 years, putting everything in order, uh, every enemy is destroyed. Uh, we know at the end of the millennial kingdom there's the great white throne judgment, and here we arrive at the eternal state where it's only believers who go into the eternal state. Christ has fulfilled his mission. He has done what all of the Old Testament prophecies said he would do. He's redeemed his people. He's restored the earth. He's ruled and reigned for a thousand years. And this per verse here, Paul tells us, he now hands the kingdom over to the Father. And we go into the eternal state where there's a new heavens and a new earth. So we want to look at that just briefly now. And before we do, I want to ask if you'll just pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great love. We thank you for your compassion, for your mercy. Father, we want to thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, his presence dwelling within us, the illumination of the text of Scripture, the gifting of your believers uh, in various capacities for various reasons. We want to thank you so much for the blessing that you bring to the church, your body, uh, for its building up, for its edification. And I ask, Father God, that again this morning, that you would be our teacher, that you would be our encourager, uh, that you would be the one who comes alongside and opens the truth of your word to our souls and to our minds. And Father, we pray that you might do that now. Lord, we want to thank you for all that we've heard. And we again, we ask, Lord God, that you would indeed drive it deep into our souls. Uh, Lord, you know our needs, you know our hearts, you know our struggles, our weaknesses. You know where we are pr prone to wander and why we are prone to wander. And I ask, Lord God, that you would use this series, that you would use these wonderful texts of Scripture to just help us to 
to refocus our hearts, our minds, our lives, uh, to reevaluate how we've been living, that we might be wholly and solely sold out to you and your kingdom purposes. Father, we know that your son's return is not far away. You told us to examine the, uh, the times and the seasons and to realize that these are the beginning of birth pains. And surely, Lord God, what we're seeing around us is but a, a, an indication that your son is right at the door. He's probably on the horse, ready to arrive, ready to return. Father, we pray that we would be a people who are ready for his return. And I ask, Lord God, that as we consider the eternal state, that future which is uh, yet a, f- a fair way off for us, that we would be encouraged by it, but we would be encouraged by the fact that this is a fixed certain reality that we will be a part of. May we rejoice in that and may we give thanks to you for these truths. We ask for your blessing for this time in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, when we think of the eternal state, we, we really need to think of it this way. We need to view it as a, a future reality that is unchanged, fixed, permanent, uh, and, and a state of being which will never alter in one way at all. Uh, it is always going to remain the same. And, and that being the case, we need to understand this. Uh, we need to square this away. We need to get our head around all of these things. In Revelation 21.5 The Lord says, Behold, I am making all things new. So you get to Revelation 20, and that's all about the millennial kingdom, but Revelation 21 onwards is all about the eternal state. And it starts there in verse 5. It says, Behold, I am making all things new. And you remember a few messages ago we looked at Peter, 2 Peter 3.13, where Peter told us that there would be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells they were the promises of God that is a fixed reality that will occur and we cannot change it and that's wonderful that's wonderful isn't it so let's start by just examining the I guess the spiritual climate of the eternal state the spiritual climate Uh, and I'll start by saying this that and I, I get many questions around this and you may have asked this same question and Franz you've probably heard this as well but a lot of people think about life now and kind of impose it upon life then. And what I mean is this. Um, We have this question, and it's very common. Will I be tempted to sin in the way that I am tempted to sin now? Will we be able to sin in the eternal state? Because the, the gears start turning and people think, well, the angels, before the fall of man on earth in Genesis, Uh, Lucifer was in heaven. He was a cherub angel. Um, He was the anointed angel, and he fell. Yet there was no sin. And how did that occur? Uh, Could it be possible that we could also potentially fall like he did? Because he was in a perfected state where there was no sin and temptation, and we are going to that. Could I possibly sin in the eternal state? And and they're really important questions uh, to ask and to have answered. I want to say from the get-go that it will be impossible for us to sin. Uh, For number one, there will be no sin. And nor will there be anything that tempts us. And again, you think of Lucifer and think, well, okay, well, that was the same for him. But I would say this, that God in his sovereignty knew that Lucifer would fall. Lucifer would fall. And God allowed Lucifer to fall for various reasons. He was created as the, uh, I guess, the greatest of all of God's creation with beauty and splendor. And it went to his head. And God allowed that for a reason. 
And I'm not going to answer that right now. That's a question for later, and we can talk about that later if you like. Um, but we could also, with that same line of reasoning, suggest and, and say that God also planted the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden, which Adam and Eve ate of and plunged the whole human race into sin. Now, God knew that that would happen. He didn't have to plant the tree of knowledge of good and evil there, yet he did for a purpose. And again, we're not going to go into that yet. Uh, but suffice to say, God is sovereign and God can and will in the eternal state remove anything and everything that causes temptation. But there's something else to consider. You think of Adam and Eve before the fall. Uh, we know that they were created as sinless beings and they were perfect. They were holy. They walked with God and talked with him in the cool of the day. Um, but they were very different to what we will be in the future. And in what way? Well, you see, we need to understand that we aren't simply forgiven. We aren't simply washed of our sins, right? If it were the case that we as the church, the redeemed of God, were simply forgiven, then yes, we would be just like Adam and Eve with a neutral righteousness, not having done anything in terms of righteousness towards God by obeying the commandments. But we live in a different state and a different condition before God. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ credited to our account. Every commandment that the law required a person to obey and keep, Christ obeyed and kept. And it's that perfect righteousness that the law requires that gets credited to your account at the moment you believe. And that status and that standing of righteousness isn't for this lifetime alone. We take it with us into all eternity so that we will never lose that status of righteousness. The angels didn't have that. Adam and Eve didn't have that uh, when they were created. And so that's something to consider. So you will never, I believe wholeheartedly, you will never be in a place where you will fall from grace. You will never sin. There will be no sin and temptation. There will be nothing that tempts in any way at all. And you and I are for all eternity clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so sometimes we think through these questions, and they're good questions, but there are sufficient answers to just put us at ease, to put us at ease. But let's come back to um, the, the, the concept of the eternal state. Uh, and I talked about the climate, uh, and, and we can see clearly that it will be a time and a period where there's no temptation, there's no sin. God is sovereign in absolutely every way. Uh, this eternal state is a fixed, unchangeable and permanent reality for us. Let's just read from Revelation 21, uh, verses 3 to 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We sort of already read that in 1 Corinthians 15, didn't we, that death will be done away with. No more death. And we could say it this way, that death is the wages of what? Sin. Where there's sin, there's death. The very fact that there'll be no death means that there'll also be no sin. That's the logic of what we're pointing out here. Uh, but these are wonderful blessings for us to consider that all of those things will be done away with. No more mourning, no more sadness, uh, no more pain. All of those things have passed away and that will never, ever occur again. But most importantly, 
And this is the highlight. God will dwell with man. God himself will dwell with man. Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so we have this concept. It is not just Christ ruling and reigning on the throne like in the millennial kingdom. This is God the Father together with the Son in the temple in the eternal state. God dwelling with man, heaven and earth together in one place. What a, what a wonderful concept to consider. Revelation 21, 27, uh, it says here regarding uh, the city, the city of the living God, the, the new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven, nothing un, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So here we just get this wonderful picture of the heavenly Jerusalem, the new city, with a temple in it where God dwells, and there is nothing evil, nothing sinful, nothing dark, nothing that is corrupted or defiled, only purity, only holiness, only righteousness. It's a, a wonderful spiritual climate that we can enjoy. And we, we really can't relate to that, can we? Uh, perhaps the best thing that we can relate to is when that we as the body of Christ gather together uh, in holiness and purity and we worship God and we praise him together and we have all things in common. That's the closest thing we have to that right now. Uh, it's a wonderful taste. It's a wonderful sample of what things will be like in a fuller and greater way. Uh, I mentioned earlier in one of the messages the tree of life the tree of life, um, trying to get us to understand that there is a tree of life in heaven right now and it's a very real and physical tree. But the scriptures tell us that in the eternal state where there is the new heavens and the new earth, the tree of life will also be present again. Uh, we know that it was there in Genesis. We know that it, was a, uh, it is a reward for those who have trusted in Christ and given their lives to him. Revelation 22, 1-2, listen to this. And I'm just trying to build the picture for you so that you can kind of get, a, a, I guess, a, a, an understanding of what's going on in the eternal state. Verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Down to verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. It seems as though there that the eating of the fruit of the tree of life is a reward of some kind for the people of God. Verse 19. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Revelation 2.7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Can you see how it's a reward of some kind? We don't fully understand it, but we know that in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, the tree of life was present. And once Adam and Eve had sinned, they were driven out of the garden. And what did God say? Lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. 
So there seems to be a connection here with the tree of life and eternal life living forever. It seems to be a kind of reward offered by God to God's people. So that's just a a point to make regarding the tree of life. What about those who are opposed to God? What happens there? Where are they? What happens to God's enemies? Uh, Well, speaking of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, 27, we are told that in the city, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You can jump across to Revelation 22.15. It says here, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, people read that and they get very confused over that and they think, okay, well, I've got this picture of a city and everything pure is in that city. God is there, the tree of life, righteousness, but outside the dogs, the sorcerers. So that means that in the new world there's evil people functioning what does that mean well there's a reason why these people in verse 15 can't enter into the holy city because they're somewhere else they're not walking around in the new earth they're somewhere else revelation 21 8 tells us where they are but as for the cowardly the faithless the detestable as for murderers the sexually immoral sorcerers Uh, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So these people mentioned here in verse 15, when God says outside, they are certainly outside, but they are outside in the lake of fire. It's something to just square away in our minds. For those of us who believe well, and those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation, The spiritual climate in the New Jerusalem, in the eternal state, is one where uh, we have no more pain. There is no more suffering. There is no more weakness, no more physical limitation. Uh, We enter into eternity with the same eternal bodies that we had during the millennial kingdom, bodies that are made to endure and last for all time, which is hard to consider and conceive of, isn't it? Uh, There'll be no temptation, there'll be no sin, there'll be no sorrow or sadness, there'll be no injustice, no oppression, no unrighteousness. There'll only be joy, peace, love, pure worship, praising God, um, a never-ending existence of learning and exploring and being amazed at the wonders of our God and his creation for all time. What a wonderful thing to consider. Now, we've already made mention that God is present with man on his throne. Um, Revelation 21, 22, it says here that there is uh, no temple in the city, uh, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Uh, that's Revelation 21, 22. And it says there the glory illuminates the entire earth. Uh, we know that there is no sun, there is no moon, but it's the glory of God that illuminates the whole world. Um, and that is a wonderful thing to consider Uh, We will be free to live lives of worship, lives of praise, love, and we can serve the Lord uh, from the depth of our being. What about the environmental conditions of the new heaven and the new earth? And Just from maybe a physical perspective, um, Revelation 21.1 tells us, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
So there is no physical sea. There's no salt water. It's just fresh water if, there is there, if it is there at all. Revelation 21.22 says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So imagine that. You know, and I think of this often. We go outside and we stand in the sun and we, we look at the trees and we can see shadows cast everywhere. And the reason why you have shadows is because there's a source of light in a particular spot pointing in a t- particular direction. This will be so bright and there will be no shadows because there will be just light everywhere. And it's hard to conceive of, isn't it? And this is me processing this in my mind, that God's glory and the brightness of Christ will illuminate the whole world, not from one particular source moving around in the sky like we have now, but just bright light everywhere, no darkness at all. And maybe there's a spiritual parallel there. I'm not sure. Maybe there's a spiritual parallel of some kind. Verse 24 says, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Verse 5 of Revelation 22, And night will be no more, there will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. No need of the sun, no need of a lamp. Christ will illuminate the whole world by his presence. It's a wonderful truth that we are to think through and be encouraged by. Uh, and you know what? Scripture is fairly silent about many of the aspects of the eternal state. Franz and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. Uh, we try and grab all that we can from Scripture, and we don't want to make more of uh, what is actually there, but we want to know from Scripture what is there and build a, a clear perspective of this. Um, I always think of it this way, that we look at this earth, and I said this the other day, and we consider the beauty, we consider the grandeur of it, the fact that it's mind-blowing, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. But then we have to stop and think, well, okay, this is a sin-cursed earth in a sin-cursed world. The glory that God has created is far exceeding what we see now. And then we go to Revelation 21, 22, and we consider the descriptions, the stones and the gold and the streets of gold and so forth, and it's mind-boggling to try and create a picture of that in your mind. It's hard to consider uh, the, the glory and the beauty that God has for us there. And I'm convinced that he has created us in a way that we are to appreciate beauty. Obviously, in our fallenness, we corrupt that. But the reason why God makes the streets of gold, uh, the gates of the city of one single pearl each, the foundations are of different kinds of precious stones, and God's brightness shines on the whole thing. I can't imagine the, the, the display of light and color. Uh, God describes it that way because he has created us to appreciate and value beauty. Uh, and that is God. That is what he has done. And we will be in awe of these things when we consider this city. And really in Revelation, it's only the city that is described for us. We should also understand and believe and agree that the whole world, which we will inhabit and be a part of, will be just as beautiful, right? It will be far more beautiful than what we see now. And it will be absolutely wonderful. This city... And we'll talk about this in a moment. But this city 
is massive. This city that comes down out of heaven, it is massive. 2,200 kilometres length by width by height. Uh, It's it's a perfect cube, 2,200 kilometres. Now I got on Google Earth and I pulled up a map of Australia and I kind of wanted to see just how big it is and it fits right in the middle of Australia. A huge city created by God, 2,200 kilometres high. And again, we think of that concept of flying. Well, if you've got to go up 2,200 kilometres, you've got to be able to fly. It's a big elevator otherwise. You've got to be able to fly. So that will be a wonderful thing to look forward to. Um, We also speak about the idea of the Garden of Eden on earth. Uh, that concept of paradise lost and paradise found. And obviously in the millennial kingdom, the earth will be renewed and restored. But we could also say that, um, and I think I mentioned this in the first message, that it's probably likely that the Garden of Eden described in Genesis was a parallel to the beautiful Garden of Eden in heaven, where God is right now. And I would say that it's probably likely the case that the earth and the world will be one great big Garden of Eden for us to enjoy and take part in. The New Jerusalem, well, again, it's, it's that idea, the capital city of the earth, uh, God and man dwelling together. Revelation 21, 1 to 3, and I read this before. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. Uh, What a beautiful picture of God the Father and God the Son dwelling with mankind. Uh, The Holy Spirit dwelling in us and with us permanently forever. Important point to make. Um, Verse 6, it says here, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, and that's the one who has run the race well, uh, will have his heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And we know and we understand that our God is our father already and we are his children, but I think it speaks here of an appropriation where we no longer see him, believe in him by faith, but we see him with sight. We are physically in his presence. Verses 9 to 14, the same chapter. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, here we get this description of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the, at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates and on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What a wonderful picture, and it's, it's hard to kind of describe and, 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 and have that image in your mind of what it will actually be like. 
but it's a, it's a wonderful picture that we've got to try and recreate in our minds if we can. But really the point here is that heaven and earth are now one. The Father has come down from heaven and now dwells on earth with his people. Uh, and we think of it logically, wherever God dwells, uh, wherever heaven is, that is where God dwells. And that's the picture here, heaven and God coming down from, from above to earth to be one with his people. Um, the city here is mentioned of having gates and angels guarding the gates and so forth. Well, that's not uh, for security reasons. Uh, it's really a display of power, uh, a display of strength, if we could say it that way. Um, Every precious stone, we're told, is used in the construction of this heavenly city. Uh, they're created to glorify God, to magnify God, that we would look and behold and be in awe and wonder at our God and his creation. I can't imagine the illumination of all of those crystal clear stones, the crystal clear stream of water, the gold, everything shining, everything being bright. We're told in verses 24 to 26 that nations and kings will come in and they will bring uh, themselves into that, uh, into that heavenly city. Listen to verse 24. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations. So what do we say with that? Well, clearly in the millennial kingdom we know and we understand that there will be different nations, there'll be other kingdoms all under Christ's rule and reign. But even here in the, millennia, in, in the eternal state, there will be different nationalities. There'll be different kingdoms. And if there are different kingdoms, then there will be a sense of rank and order. There will be roles and responsibilities. There will likely be occupations for that eternal state. And we kind of have a I guess a funny understanding of uh, rank and order and we think that it's kind of a godless thing and uh, definitely the world believes that. But if we were to consider the Godhead, there is equality and there is also rank and there is also order and there is also submission in and amongst the Godhead. And I believe that in that eternal state, that will still be the case. There'll be kings, there'll be rulers, there'll be ambassadors, there'll be rank, there'll be order, there'll be love and there'll be submission, each doing and fulfilling their God-given roles. We see this even in the angelic realm, don't we? Different ranks of angels with different responsibilities and different purposes. So that'll be a reality in the eternal state. Uh, Revelation 22, 1 to 5 speaks of the river of the water of life. The river of the water of life. And it says this in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So here it's probably similar to the millennial kingdom where the water ushers, um, flows from beneath the throne of, God, throne of Christ in the millennial kingdom and turns the salt water to fresh. A similar thing here. It says here, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life and its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations a uh, beautiful picture here of what God has in store for us. Verse 3 of Revelation 22. Again, we're trying to create the picture of what this eternal state is actually like. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of sorry, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I love this concept of when you go through the Old Testament scriptures and you see the promises of God given to certain individuals, promises which uh, we know many of them uh, received in their lifetime. There's a picture of Abraham in the book of Hebrews, uh, and the fact that this godly man left all and followed God and lived for God uh, in light of a promise that was given for him. And the promise was of an eternal home. Hebrews 11.8, listen to this. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose what? Whose designer and builder is God. And we would say for the Jew that these promises were fulfilled when the land was given to them in the millennial kingdom, but there's a sense in which the promise to Abraham extended even beyond the millennial kingdom where Israel were restored to the eternal state because he speaks here in verse 10 of a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And that's a picture here of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Verse 13 of Hebrews 11 These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. What's he saying? Well, Abraham went out not looking back, not thinking back, but living according to the will of God and the purposes of God by faith, doing what God said with his eye and his mind on the future, on the promise. And Hebrews tells us that for Abraham, his heart wasn't simply set on an earthly home, but it was looking for a city whose author and designer and creator was God himself. Abraham was considering the eternal state. Verse 16 says, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I would encourage you to spend some time in the next few days reading through Revelation 21 and 22 and and be encouraged. Be encouraged by what the word says. And and I've tried my best to kind of paint a picture for you of and to bring these truths together as to what the climate, uh, spiritual and, and maybe social, uh, is, is like in the eternal state. But I encourage you to study this and be encouraged. But again, I think the main point we take out of it is that we are to be just like Abraham, right? We are to be those who walk by faith, who live by faith. Uh, we are to be like uh, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress who was looking for the celestial city and we desire a better home. We look forward to a kingdom that is to come. We look forward to this eternal state. And you can see in Abraham's life how this attitude, this perspective, this heavenly vision affected how he lived in the present. He didn't look back. 
He didn't live for the here and now. He got on with business, so to speak, and he walked by faith, honouring God all the way. And we're to do the same thing. We are to do the same thing. And you know what? My, my fear is that for us as believers, we, we come to Christ and we, we believe and we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and we submit to his lordship. But there's a common denominator in amongst many people within churches, and I see this all the time, that people will come to Christ at the moment of salvation and they'll bend the knee and they'll call him Lord and then they'll step away just a little and then they will take back from Christ the lordship and they will start living as the Lord of their own life, still giving verbal assent to the fact that Christ is Lord, but then living as though they were in fact Lord calling the shots, making the decisions, not consulting Christ, not seeking his word and will for their life, but living as though they are the Lord and master of their own life. That's why scripture says that we are to take up our cross daily because the natural tendency of our sinful flesh is to retake that lordship for ourselves. I'd encourage you to examine yourself because the Christian life, the walk of faith, running the race all the way to the end with our eyes set on the eternal goal and glory is one that we live continually submitted to the lordship of Christ, where he rules, where he reigns, and we live for his will. Uh, You and I wrestle with this all the time. And and I just encourage you to be, I guess, uh, awestruck, encouraged, and thrilled by what is to come, thrilled by the promise of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus so that we will live the here and now submissive to the will of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we want to thank you for revealing these truths to us in your word. And Father, we confess that we have to actually stop. We have to slow down. Uh, We have to chew over what you have revealed to us. Lord, I cannot have imagined what John the Apostle must have seen on the Isle of Patmos as he was ushered from one vision and one place to the next, seeing uh, the future for us and the future for him laid out in picture format. He must have been absolutely blown away and gobsmacked. Father, I pray that you would magnify the realities of your promise to our mind, that we would realise and recognise that what you have given to your children is beyond measure. It's almost beyond understanding and comprehension. I pray that you would give us clarity I pray that you would overwhelm us with your great love and your great mercy. Father, you could have redeemed us and saved us and just um, caused us to walk in newness of life and into eternity. But, Father, you have lavished upon us every blessing in the spiritual places. And when we stop and we consider our future, the present heavens, the future heavens, the millennial kingdom, Father, you are a God who is lavish. You are a God who abounds in mercy and grace. Lord, you do not do things by halves, but, Father, you go over and above and you are displaying your glory, your beauty, your creativity, your holiness, your righteousness through your creation. We want to thank you for your kindness. We want to thank you for the fact that you bless us in such ways. And, Lord, we just acknowledge, and and even as we break bread now and drink the cup, we remember the Lord's death. Father, that should have been us dying on that cross. That should have been us suffering for all eternity for our sins, yet your loving son gave his life that we might live. Father, we don't just live, but we live life in abundance and we rejoice in this and we want to thank you from the depth of our being. We praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.